0: I'm glad that we had a reprieve of sorts uh, for a couple of weeks between the last chapter of Isaiah and uh, this one because it might have been jarring for us to hear sermons back to back on Isaiah 62 and then on the chapter to which I ask you to turn your attention this morning, Isaiah 63. Uh, we go from the flowing grace and mercy and and uh, a love of God, uh, the redemption of the church, and so on from the last chapter in which her name is changed from desolate to uh, desired uh, by, or uh, delighted in God, in by God rather, and a a city not forsaken, and God rejoicing in this church, I say with one great seismic shift now, uh, we come suddenly face to face with a Jesus uh, whom you may not recognize. Even Isaiah does a double take, doesn't recognize him uh, at first, doesn't seem to, and he appears striding toward him on the horizon in bright glory, uh, mixed with bloody terror, uh, corpses strewn about behind him. Who is this? He asks, with the mixed awe and horror. And we ask the same thing this morning ourselves, who is this? And may God give us grace to receive the answer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you will widen our hearts and open the portals of our hearts to receive your word. Very wide open them, Father, because these are things we're not accustomed to thinking about our Savior. But things that your scripture has made abundantly clear. And that was we must not only receive, but love and live by. So we pray, Father, that your spirit richly uh, will bless your word now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 63, we'll read the first 14 verses. The first six verses are something of a conversation between Isaiah and the anointed one as he approaches. Isaiah begins, Who is this who comes from Edom? In crimsoned garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Isaiah now, verse seven. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. With apologies to those of you who've heard me <clears throat> quoted perhaps several times over the past 16 years, I cannot help but invoke Mr. and Mrs. Beaver from C.S. Lewis's classic adventure, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. On our summer vacation a few months ago, we stood right next to and looked at the the very desk now on display at Wheaton College, at which uh, C.S. Lewis gave life to this wise, semi-aquatic, rodent couple uh, of the Dam of Narnia to explain to listening children just who is this great lion named Aslan. Sitting around the table, the, the conversation came to Aslan. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion. Lion, the great lion," oh, said Susan. "I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake," said Mrs. Beaver. "If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just else just silly." Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Just about the time you start getting comfortable with God, With with Jesus, about the time you think you've had him figured out, become over-familiar with him, he surprises you. He is, as we sang just a little while ago, fairest Lord Jesus. It is true. It is 100% wonderfully, gloriously true. But I confess that I picked that hymn purposefully today. He is fairest Lord Jesus, but that's not all. Jesus in the Bible also has a sharp and terrible sword protruding from his mouth. Here's what the Apostle John saw in the vision that we, we now call the book of Revelation. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. John saw the same thing Isaiah did, that robe dipped in blood, and And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe. And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You can almost hear the apostle agreeing with Mr. Beaver uh, about the Christ figure. what, What Beaver said, the Beaver said about the Christ figure in the Lewis story, of course he isn't safe. Never gave you the idea that he was safe. But he's good. He's the king. He isn't safe. Nor is he simple. Jesus is a complex person. One who tends his sheep with quintessential tenderness. And slays his enemies in a bath of blood. The same Jesus. He is a loving and tender husband to his bride, the church. But he wields an iron scepter with which he smashes all those who do not bow the knee to him. Jesus is not simple. He is complex. He isn't safe. But he is good. He's the church's best friend, and he is the church's worst enemy. We obey the word that Paul writes in his letter to the Romans this morning, then note well the kindness and the severity of God. As if it were possible, I want this morning to pull on each of those interwoven strands of the double helix of uh, the DNA of Jesus. I want to pull those two strands, if we may, apart and look at each of them, His wrath and His grace. First, let us note carefully the severity, the wrath of our Savior. It's a terrible thing, terrible indeed, to find yourself on the severe side of our Savior, his enemies of all ages and times are typified here in verse 1 by the nation called Edom and her capital city, Basra. When Isaiah first catches a glimpse of the anointed one uh, coming, he sees him coming from the, the south, southeast, we can imagine, where lay that nation that bitterly hated and harassed, and as often as possible, uh, the people of God. You remember who were the Edomites, don't you? The descendants of Esau, uh, the brother of Jacob, who was the father, of course, of the Israelites. Uh, In the days of the prophets, Edom epitomized, represented perfectly all of fallen and rebellious humanity, uh, uh, lovers of the earth, haters of God, persecutors of God's people because of their allegiance to a higher kingdom. A simple study of your Bible will show you how bitter were the, was the rivalry between Edom and Judah, how bitter Edom proved over the years as an enemy, how she showed her true colors in the way she treated God's people, which, by the way, is often the way that the enemies of God show their colors, isn't it? By how they treat God's people. You've seen it in your own lives as well. Someone has seen in their disdain, the disdain that is of unbelievers for for believers of of all ages, in the words of a uh, Bob Dylan song, go ahead and talk about him because he makes you doubt. Because he has denied himself the things you can't live without. Laugh at him behind his back, just like the others do. Remind them of what he used to be when he comes walking through. Stop your conversation when he passes on the street. Hope he falls upon himself. Oh, won't that be sweet. Because he can't be exploited by superstition anymore. Because he can't be bribed or bought by the things that you adore. When the whip that's keeping you in line doesn't make him jump, say he's hard of hearing. Say that he's a chump. Say he's out of step with reality as you try to test his nerve because he doesn't pay tribute to the king that you serve. He's the property of Jesus resent him to the bone you got something better you've got a heart of stone for those stony of heart and haters of god and persecutors and molesters of his people our king jesus is all wrath isaiah Palled at the appearance of the Mighty One. Asked verse 2, why is your apparel red? Your garments like he who treads in a winepress. You have to imagine now, with your mind's eye, the, the splendid, uh, brilliantly white apparel of the Great Anointed One, our Lord, saturated in blood. Have you been trampling grapes? Isaiah ventures. Oh, that the answer were that tame. Instead, it is disturbing. Jesus answers Isaiah on his own terms Yes, I've been treading a wine press, only it's not grapes, it's people. The red stains are not the blood of fruit, but of men. I have trodden the winepress alone. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. What is in his heart? He says. This is a personal thing with him. He trampled them as an act of vengeance, angry and wrathful. He's not the effeminate, you know, uh, 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 lime-lit, soft-colored Jesus uh, that you've grown accustomed to seeing hanging on the plates and in the pictures and all that in in the Christian bookstore. They don't have pictures like this of Jesus in the Christian bookstore, or like Isaiah's, spattered with blood of his enemies, whom he's just crushed like grapes in a wine press under his feet. It's going to be a long time before you see a picture in another Christian's house of Jesus that looks like this, or see this in stained glass in a Christian church in Owensboro. It's repulsive. It really is. Tell you, my friends, you don't ever want to find yourself on the fighting side of Jesus. You say, Well, it it, it won't be so. You know, it can't be. I am in the church, I am on the inside, I'm a church member. But brace yourselves. As terrible as his wrath against Edom, his enemies must be. Somehow, perhaps, you're able to adjust yourself to that idea, though it remains a repulsive one, as long as the enemy is out there. But what is this, verse 10? Looking to the church, the apple of his eye, where he might reasonably have expected to find people Obedient and faithful and submissive, loving him, loving his law, remembering his commandments to do them. Instead, he finds this they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Now, maybe you understand. Why, I would say such an outlandish thing as I did a few moments ago that that Jesus is the church's worst enemy. I tell you, your enemy, the devil, cannot at his very worst hold a candle to the terror that awaits those who find themselves enemies of King Jesus, particularly those who had been in his very camp, in the church. And it doesn't matter if you sat in the pews every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening and even midweek. It doesn't matter how long your name has been on the rolls of the church membership doesn't matter if you were a deacon or an elder or a minister in this church. To the sleepy, unrepentant church in Sardis, Jesus says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. To the lukewarm church in Laodicea, who is neither hot nor cold, he says, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. To the church in Owensboro, he says, What? I certainly hope that whatever he says about us. And it runs a lot closer to what he has to say to the church in Philadelphia. That you have kept my word. That you have not denied my name. I hope he has that to say or something close to it rather than what he had to say to Sardis or Laodicea or to the church in Isaiah's day. To their dismay, many individuals in the church who will have made a very good show of Christianity in this life, but no more than a show, mind you, who will petition the Lord for entrance the heaven, saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? We'll hear from King Jesus, their enemy, in whose name they had prophesied, their enemy, in whose name they had done these mighty works. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's a path you see that leads straight from the cushioned church seat to the very pit. Of hell. The celebrated Lutheran scholar John Warwick Montgomery expresses it this way. He says, I've heard people say very often it's better to go to the church than not to go. It can't hurt you. Well, my friend, he continues, it can hurt you. The church can be a place of accelerated salvation. But it can also be a place of accelerated damnation. You don't want to find yourself ever on the fighting side of Jesus. But if you think you can have Jesus and still play around with your sins, if you think you can have Jesus and put them on the shelf with the rest of your talismans, your good luck charms. Dust them off on Sunday morning. And otherwise, do as you please. Live a life devoid of any real repentance and faith, with no real chasing after holiness in response to God's grace. I warn you, prepare to feel his sword, prepare to feel his iron scepter, and that day Edom's fate will actually be very much preferred, will look a whole lot better than the fate that awaits those who took the name, but not the reality of Christ, to themselves. Unless you think that a uniquely Old Testament message and isolated to that part of the Bible, you need only look to the new to find that it remains the very same, Uh, that it was Jesus himself who said that you mustn't fear him who can kill uh, the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As the writer of the letter to The Hebrew Christians put it, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is severe, but second, let us note the goodness, the kindness, the grace of our Savior. As terrible as He is in His wrath, He is wonderful in His grace. And in his kindness, he isn't safe, mind you, but he is good. As personal as his vengeance must be coming from his heart, as he says, so also is his love. From that same heart, verse 4, comes his redemption. Redemption. Even as he strides mightily in his blood spattered and saturated garment, having trampled his enemies, he brings salvation by his might. Verse 7. Even as he turns to become the enemy of the unrepentant, disobedient church, he also remembers. Comes to mind, verse 11, the days of old. You can't see it so much in the English in verse 11. Uh, but the expression in the Hebrew is quite abrupt. In English, we get to, then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. But in the Hebrew, it's much more abrupt. He remembered the days of your Moses, his people. It comes, comes jolting to his mind and turns him from his reaction of wrath. These flashes of memory concerning the church whom he has bought, he remembers, verse 8, that they are his people. As zealous as he is in his wrath, he is jealous for you, for his people, and loves you. He loves you as much as he loves his own reputation on the earth. As much as he loves his own name, verse fourteen. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. How many times have we noticed this in the Bible together over these years? How our salvation is not so much for our sake as it is for His. He didn't save you so much for your your sake. He saved you for his sake, for the glory of his name, for the sake of his reputation. He saves you and keeps you and does not let you go. It is as though he says to the onlooking world, he says, look what I can do. Look at what I can do. I can take a bunch of people, people like, well, I don't know, take that group there in Owensboro. Look at them. I can take a group of people like that, silly, wandering, sometimes downrightly rebellious children, and make them trophies of my grace. I can overcome even their sin, even their rebellion, and make them people who are a credit to me. And to my power to save. To the power of my grace. Look at them there. Look at what I can do. And he does. It would be an amazing feat, truly it would, to take and transform even just one of us by his grace, by his Holy Spirit at work in us, let alone a whole sanctuary full. And not only this sanctuary, but Christians who have gathered for worship all over the face of this globe have done so for millennia in the past, will do so for however long the Lord has into the future. For them, as for us, His grace, as we sing, let us never forget the meaning of this word. It is amazing. Grace. Just think about it for a minute. He's, he's chosen you, verse 8. They are my people. E.J. Young says that this should be translated, only they are my people. What could be a matter of greater rejoicing than this, than a God has chosen you? He's covenanted with you. My people, verse 8. The metaphor of father and children in that same verse. These are covenant terms throughout the Bible, and this is privilege upon privilege, to not only be his people, to be his children. He's chosen us. He's covenanted with us. He sympathizes with us. Verse 9, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. There's no hardship you ever go through or face, no pain, no trial, but that he feels it with you. Amazing. In some wonderful, mysterious way, God enters, Jesus enters right into your afflictions, even as he sovereignly rules over them. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace, in our time of need, He is with us, just as He was with our spiritual fathers and mothers in the wilderness and through the waters of the Jordan and to the promised land. The Holy Spirit is with us, even as He was with them of old. And said right here in this passage, His Holy Spirit was with them. The angel of His presence, verse 9, went with them and He goes with you. He's carrying you, verse 9. Lifted them up. Carried them all the days of old. There's a, it's, a, it's a picture of a, of a mother holding her children to her breast and carrying them. So He does with you. He gives us rest. Verse 14. You know the familiar pastoral scene. Like livestock, like horses going out to graze in a peaceful uh, pa- uh, pasture so the spirit of the Lord gives rest I said earlier that Jesus is a complex person he is he's a blood stained warrior and he's a tender shepherd but he is not contradictory his wrath and his grace, they're not contradictory. In fact, we are living examples, actually, of their compatibility. We, you and I were by nature objects of his wrath. But his grace was perfectly suited to satisfy his wrath. They fit perfectly together. When he laid down his life for you and for me, the one who spatters the blood of his enemies on his own garments as he tramples them underfoot was willing first that their garments should be spattered with His for the sake of those among them whom He would save.